If you all will, go ahead and turn your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 2. I'd like to start there. I'll open us with a word of prayer. Will you turn there? God, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to gather together as a church family, Lord. Thank you, as has already been acknowledged just this past week, this past Thursday in particular, just having a day of Thanksgiving, Lord. Of just looking back on your abundant provision in our lives. But Lord, your provision is so much more than simply our lives. Lord, you've been our provider since the beginning of time. And so I pray that today as we spend time in your word, that we would acknowledge that. It would be a time of continued thanksgiving of your abundant provision, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, Lord, just who you are, that we would learn more about you, God. We would fall in love with Jesus more and more, Lord. And that as a result, our hearts would be broken and you would just have your way in and through us. So I pray that you would just help us to understand your word, that you would just illumine our hearts and our minds to be able to rightly understand and apply it, Lord. I'm grateful to you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So... Um, yeah, as I was preparing for this, um, I wanted to spend some time. I mean, it's, it's uh, kind of appropriate. We're, we're just now through Thanksgiving, and so, of course, Christmas is on everybody's mind. Uh, for some places like Walmart and Home Depot, Christmas has been on their mind since October 30th. Um, but for some of us, maybe it's before. I don't know if anybody celebrates Christmas in July. Um, down here, it still feels like July when it's Christmas, so it's one and the same. Um, no, but so I was thinking about that, and so uh, wanting to spend some time in Matthew chapter 2. However, that's not where we're going to spend the majority of our time. I'd like to spend the majority of our time in the book of Micah, looking at uh, a specific verse that is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. And I wanted to do this because I find it particularly helpful. It's been helpful for me in looking through the New Testament whenever the Old Testament is quoted. The authors did that for a reason. There's much significance to be gleaned from there. So just looking at this text, wanting to spend some time walking through that. And I'll go ahead and tell you what I'm really hoping the takeaway from this is, is understanding, recognizing, believing, and applying that our God is a covenant-keeping God. Uh, and so with that being said, I don't want to go through this message I feel like the Lord's put on my heart repeating the, the term covenant and it just kind of being this maybe theological word, this abstract term. I want us to understand what that means. So uh, I'll attempt to give my definition of a covenant. So a covenant is uh, an oath, a vow, a promise between two parties. Uh, in particular with what we'll be looking at is a divine covenant. So this is a covenant that God has established with man. And really rather than it being like God and man, like drawing up terms like, okay, if you do this, then we'll do that. And then like man's like, no, I don't really feel interested in that. Let's negotiate. We'll do this instead. And God's like, okay, okay, we'll do that. Like that's not the way a divine covenant works. A divine covenant, God is like, this is the way things are going to work. And you do it. Or you pay the consequences. 
So on the one hand, that sounds like negative, but I'm really hoping as we work through this text, we realize like, God is so gracious and merciful to have done that for us. We are so undeserving of the mercy that God has poured out on mankind from the creation of the world onward, even to this day. But he's faithful. And God has fulfilled what we'll read in Matthew chapter 2 by his own power, for his own namesake, for his own glory. And we're the benefit, the recipients of that. So I hope that that, that idea of a covenant, of a, of a, a promise, an oath, uh, an agreement between two parties in a divine covenant. God is the one that has made the oath, the vow, and we are responsible for falling under that. Uh, a good example of a covenant is marriage. Marriage is really a covenant. Uh, a husband and a wife, they, they vow. They have their wedding vows. Those are significant. They're entering into a covenant with each other. They are agreeing that we will be faithful to one another for better or for worse in sickness and health. Through all of that, that is what a covenant is. It's that, that love that binds it together, that daily waking up and deciding, I am committed to this individual. It's not that you, you make a vow, you make a covenant, and then like this Jesus magic thing happens and everything's perfect. I think for those of us that are married, understand that. There's challenges, there's struggles that you face, but there's that daily commitment to one another that we are covenanted together and we are bound together. And so we are going to act that out. We're going to walk that out. And so that's, uh, in a small sense, what God has done with us. What God has done is a much greater sense. Um, so let's look at the text. So Matthew chapter 2, we'll work through that. I always like providing context. <clears throat> so just to back up a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 starts out just showing the genealogy of Jesus. This is actually really interesting. I don't know how many of you struggle with the genealogies, especially like in the Old Testament. There's like whole books devoted to genealogies, and I would be a liar if there's times when I get to that. It's not like, here we go again. Um, but I have grown to appreciate them more as I've spent time in God's Word. So um, in particular with this genealogy given here, in Matthew, this is showing that Jesus is the descendant of David, and it goes all the way back, tracing that Jesus is the one that God promised would come, that he is the king that was promised coming from the lineage of David. Um, so those are verses 1 through 17. I don't need to spend more time there. Uh, but it is interesting. If you dig through there and all the names listed there, you can actually trace it back to like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles and accounts given in there. And it's really neat actually fitting those things within their place and seeing how God traced this out and preserved this remnant for Jesus to come about. Verses 18 through 25 tell of the birth of Jesus. Uh, as we just read in Luke, as Bradley read, there's that account that's given here. That that account that Luke gives is mostly focused on, on Mary and, and her response, her encounter, and what came about that. Where in Matthew, uh, it's predominantly focused on Joseph. So Mary's about, found to be uh, with a child. This is before she was married. So she was just betrothed to Joseph. That was basically like she was engaged, but they weren't able to live together or do anything like that. And so the fact that she was uh, found to be with a child 
typically would lead to the assumption of promiscuity, that like she was unfaithful. And so that's where Joseph resolves. It says that he was a, a just man and who was unwilling to divorce her. He didn't want to put her to shame. Uh, so he was just going to divorce her quietly and, and let bygones be bygones. But he's visited by an angel in a dream, and the angel tells him this is from Jesus, or this is, uh, this is, this is from God that he's to name this baby Jesus because he will save his people. This is really a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. So the, the neat thing is that Joseph did what he was told. Like, that's really important. It's really easy just to kind of gloss over that. Like, all right, he did what he was told. But you put yourself in that situation. You have your fiance that you are looking forward to being married with, spending the rest of your life with, and then you find out, oh, she's pregnant, and it's not every day that like there's this like miraculous like conception that all of a sudden a woman just has a baby show up in her stomach and like it, it wasn't because of unfaithfulness. So having to wrestle through those feelings, having this dream, this angel visits, and I mean, really, you put yourself in that situation, there'd be a lot of feelings and things to wrestle through, but he believed God. He was faithful, he was obedient. So now picking up in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, I'm going to read through the text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, referring to Micah. So chapter or verse 6 is this quote from Micah that we'll dig into. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So from here, I want us to turn to the book of Micah. He's one of the minor prophets. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. You can use your index if you need to get there. But go ahead and turn to the book of Micah. And I'm going to give a brief overview. I say brief. Uh, I'm going to give an overview of Micah. And then uh, we'll specifically focus on chapter 5 where these verses are being quoted here in Matthew chapter 2. Um, but I want to do this because I think it's really easy. I know I can be guilty of during this time of year, after Thanksgiving... Christmas being on our mind, and being Christians, obviously, we're aware that Christmas is to be Christ-centered. And so I, I, I believe that many of us strive to have that mindset. We want to to go into the holiday seasons with a, a God-glorifying mindset, a, a heart that is contrite towards those things. But I'll be honest, it's really easy for things just to become familiar. I think is the best way to put it, uh, especially us living in the South. There's this kind of Southern culture. There's this uh, cultural Christianity. And then from that, we decorate our house with this cultural Christianity where, especially this time of year, there's the wall hangings with the Bible verses, or you get the Christmas cards or things like that. I, I hope you guys know what I'm talking about. There's just these, these things where there's these, these types of verses, Matthew 2, 6, that are that are up there's the songs that we sing and they're, they're great but it, it becomes familiar it just becomes a a part of our culture it's just what we do and it's hard to really grab a hold of what is actually going on here so i think it's interesting we go back to the book of micah 
where this is being quoted in the New Testament by Matthew and over, remember, 800, 500, 800 years, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. There's this gap of time from when this prophecy was given to here, Matthew's picking up that thread and saying this is going on. Now, that, that's a huge chunk of time. I'm 31 years old. I mean, like, I already feel like I've been around the block a little while. Some of you have been around the block a little longer than me. But, I mean, 500-year span of time, 800 years, whichever it is, that's a large gap of time. But God is faithful. God is working in the midst of all of those years, all of those circumstances, all of those people leading up to that genealogy, that birth of Jesus. So looking at Micah, Micah, I want to give a little bit of context because I, I don't know how many of you spend time in the Minor Prophets and are just super familiar with it. I am not. So a little bit of context is helpful. So Micah was a prophet. He was in particular like a prophet, a preacher of judgment. So this was a season in which Israel was unfaithful. The nation was unfaithful. They were not obeying God. And so they were reaping the the bad fruit of that. Uh, this was in the last third of the 8th century during the reign of the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, his ministry overlapped with Isaiah's ministry. So I think that's interesting to note. There's a lot of parallels between their ministries, but they were around the same time. Uh, more likely than not, Micah would have witnessed the fall of Samaria, which was Israel's capital city. Uh, so in this time, this is whenever, so there's King David, good king, King Solomon, good king, kind of not so good towards the end. And then you get into all the good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king kind of thing throughout uh, Kings and Chronicles, if you're familiar with those passages. Uh, and so there was the split where there was Judah, which was the southern kingdom, and there was the northern kingdom, Israel capital city Samaria so oftentimes you'll hear it interchanged for Samaria so I just want that in our head there were the Israel was divided God's people were divided and they were worshiping idols they were not being obedient and so they were they were reaping that the northern kingdom in particular was a little less faithful um, you could say there was just basically bad king after bad king and people were following suit with that and so as a result they were, uh, the Assyrians invaded, and basically they were just scattered. They, they more or less didn't exist anymore. Uh, in particular, Micah's ministry was focused on Judah, the remnant that was left there, and what was going on in there. And this was in 701 BC, where then the Assyrians, after uh, doing what they did in the northern kingdom, dispersing them, they were invading Jerusalem, um, and they were basically like on the heels of having the same thing happen to them Judah was. Uh, ultimately, God preserved them. But they were basically what I'm trying to paint the picture of. It was pretty chaotic. They were Israel, God's people were not being faithful. They were facing judgment. It was hard times. And this is where Micah is inserted into all of this chaos to deliver God's message to his people, to try and get them to wake up. You are being unfaithful. You're going to bear the consequences of your unfaithfulness. But, and we'll get into that. So to summarize the book as a whole, uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 just gives us an introduction. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 16 really lay out Israel's punishment where they're gradually being overrun by the Assyrians. They captured the capital city of Samaria in 722, and this was to serve as an example to Judah. So 
in these verses, Micah is recounting what happened to Samaria, what happened to the northern kingdom. And he's doing this deliberately. He's recounting this to Judah to tell them, remember, that's what happened to them. This is where you guys are at now. This is what's happening to you. So the Assyrians were about to take over Judah, so they would have been painfully aware of where they're at and what's going on. This punishment was not just out of the blue. This was a result of their their covenant unfaithfulness. So back through the Old Testament, God had established covenants with his people. He made it very clear what it is that he expected from them. There's the whole passage in Deuteronomy where the people are on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they're yelling back and forth the blessings and the curses that would result of their covenant faithfulness or unfaithfulness. I mean, you imagine crowds of people on a mountain yelling these things back and forth like they were aware of what was going on. However, fast forward, here they are. They disregarded it. And they're bearing the curses that they had said so many years prior would happen if they were unfaithful. So there's a huge contrast that existed during this time between the rich and the poor. In chapter 1, Mike is highlighting this, that there was this exploitation of the middle class of people by the greedy landholders. These oppressors were being supported by Israel's corrupt political and religious leaders. Because of this self-centered leadership, the whole nation had become morally corrupt and ripe for judgment. So there's this exploitation, and I mean, you read through we've been reading through uh exodus and you get into leviticus and there's all these terms about um loving one another and treating people fairly and they had they had disregarded that the rich people wanted to be more rich they were exploiting the poor and and the very people that you would think would be the most aware of what they should be doing the priests were 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 joining in on it because they wanted they wanted status they wanted money they were they were also uh, extorting people and they were they were being very very unfaithful and so looking at this they were suffering judgment and we need to look at this and the judgment they were facing Micah was pointing to the judgment of Samaria for Judah to learn from their example we need to learn from the example of Micah that he's saying and, and, and Samaria and the judgment that they were facing. And we need to learn from that ourselves that God calls us to live faithfully to him, to live in obedience to him. And if we fail to do that, there's consequences to our sin that it's not that, that it's not an A-B correlation anymore where, well, if we do wrong, then we're punished. And if we do right, we're rewarded. I don't want to paint that picture, but we need to understand that whenever we sin, there's consequences to our sin. If I climb up this tree and I jump off this tree and I break my leg, that's a result of my foolishness. I have to bear that consequence for what I did. And so as we read through these passages, we need to not just gloss over, yeah, that happened to those people in that time. Let's fast forward and get to this good stuff. But realize that's a result of their sin. What was happening to them was a result of our sin. And whenever we choose to sin, we choose to ignore what God has called us to, we reap the consequences of that. Chapters 2 through 5.15, so this is kind of a big chunk. Um, Micah is, is recounting the punishment and restoration of Israel, and he recounts the promises of, of God in a Davidic ruler to come. So what I want to specifically spend our time in is looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 
All right, I'm going to read through the text, and then I want to be able to kind of unpack some of it. So Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. So looking at verses 1 through 5, again, there's the, the bit of context of before chapters 1 and 2 leading up. 3 and 4 is all Micah foretelling of what happened to Samaria, this judgment they were facing. He's painting the picture of how Judah themselves had been unfaithful. They were greedy. They were extorting people. They were taking advantage of them. They were going to bear the consequences of their sin. So we get to chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this verse is continuing to pull through that same thread. That, that, that phrase, uh, they'll strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, is, is saying that the, the powerful will be struck ultimately by the tool that God chooses to use for judgment. This is what's going to happen to you. So must your troops prepare for this. This is going to happen. There's no getting around it. This is what you're going to face. They are in the midst of judgment. So it doesn't sound really optimistic. It's, it's, it's a, like I said, a preacher of judgment is what he is. So, okay, that's the context that we're in. But... I think it's really neat, verse 2, what's the first word there? But. So there's a contrast that's about to take place. Everything prior judgment, this is what you're facing, but. There's other verses that I'm sure we're familiar with, but God. There's always but God. We have what we foresee. This situation that we're in is bad. It looks bleak. It looks hopeless. How are we going to get around this? There's many examples that come to mind right now. I'm sure there's many examples that are probably coming to your mind that you've personally faced, that a friend, a family member has faced, where they're in this situation, these circumstances that are either a consequence of their own sinful choices or it's just God's providence, a hard providence that we find ourselves in where it's not a consequence of our sin. But there's this hardship that we're facing and we're piecing together the puzzle pieces that we have in our mind. This is the way this thing's going to play out. Maybe you have a few different options, but all, all, all roads look bleak. What are we going to do? But God. But God intervenes. And how many times in those situations where we've painted this doom and gloom picture have we gotten on the other side? And I pray to God this is true. You can look back. And you see God's faithfulness. You see the way that God step by step made a way for this good to be gleaned from that. Unfortunately, just the reality, there's sometimes where we're not privileged with having that, um, that intimate knowledge. There's hardships that we'll face where we'll never understand why. And God doesn't have to tell us why. Maybe whenever we're in glory with him, maybe we'll understand. Maybe we won't. Part of that's the mystery of God. However, his character, he's faithful. He provides. 
But I guarantee there's many times where we can look back and we do see God's faithfulness. We see his provision. And so here in these next verses in chapter 5, Micah, through the Holy Spirit, is going to paint this picture, this glimpse. There's actually this foresight of how God is going to provide for his people. So I'm just going to start unpacking some of the, the, the nuggets of this to help paint the whole picture. If you haven't already picked up on verse um, verse 2 in particular is where that's what's being quoted in Matthew. So I just want that context to stay in our head. So he says in chapter 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So this is where the prophets and uh, the priests in Matthew, they're saying this, this is the prophecy where it says the Messiah was to be born. It was to be in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is specifically, this is the house of bread is the way that it would be translated. This is grain producing region of the time. Ephrath means that it was fruitful. So there are actually two Bethlehems at that time. One was a Galilee. This other one uh, was particular, the Bethlehem Ephrathah, this house of bread where it was fruitful. And this is actually the birthplace of David, King David himself, as it says in 1 Samuel uh, 16. So it's interesting that we can look in Matthew and it says this is where the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, the same Bethlehem where David was born. And so we see, as we read in, in Matthew chapter 1, that, that Jesus is the descendant of David. There's this parallel that's going there. And it should draw to mind whenever we read that and are familiar with the context. It's the Davidic covenant that God had established with David. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God tells King David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God is making this promise to David that your throne shall be established forever. This is what is known as the Davidic covenant. And so from there you have David, and then you have Solomon, and then you have some of his descendants. But eventually it kind of disintegrates. They're actually, for a period, is no longer a descendant of David on the throne. And so in that time, in that context, it would seem like God was not faithful to his covenant. But jump forward X amount of years, and in Matthew, he picks up that thread. He says, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the one that was promised to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one that was being told then and is now here now. And so there's this covenant, the Davidic covenant, that is being fulfilled there in Matthew that we see even Micah picking up here in verse 2. Micah says that, that this Bethlehem is too little. It's not of impressive size. It's interesting because this very verse in Matthew 2, 6, he says, and Matthew says, you are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. Whereas here in, in Micah, he says that it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. So at the time of Micah, Judah was, was relatively insignificant. Bethlehem was relatively insignificant. Nothing great was going to come of it. But here in, in Matthew, Matthew is able to look back and he says, no, Jesus came from here. They, he, this is a great place that has something has come from. But in worldly eyes, in human terms, it seems small and significant. And is this not, again, the way that God chooses to work? It's not ironic that here in Micah that he's saying this, this Messiah is going to come from this small, seemingly insignificant town that, that isn't even counted among Judah. This is where God is going to choose to work. God works in the small things. He, he works in the unlikely heroes. You see this throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You look at Abraham and Isaac. Both of them were guilty of being 
fearful. When they visited these towns, they said, no, my wife's my sister, leave me alone. And you, you read what happened because they were fearful of what was going to happen to them if they were honest about their wives, that, that they were going to be, they were, they were going to face hardship as a result of that. So they were, they, they were cunning. They were shifty. They were afraid. Moses, as we read the other week, uh, I forget who it was, but where Moses is afraid, he's basically time and time again trying to weasel out of God using him. And he's like, I can't talk. I can't do it. Not going to do it. And finally, God's like, like angry. And he's like, you're going to do it. I'm going to send Aaron. I'll use him. But you're, you're the guy for the job. So again, God working through unlikely people. You think of Gideon. He was hiding in the wine press, treading out grain because he was afraid. I mean, you read through the whole story. You even look at Jesus. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but I mean, he's a, a baby. How is this little baby born of a, a, a seemingly unfaithful woman to this poor couple going to do anything great? You look at Paul. Paul had his thorn in his flesh that he... Whatever that was, was it that his vision? I don't know, but like he says that he doesn't speak well, that he he was a persecutor of Christians. Like God uses the unlikely people, the unlikely situation, the unlikely circumstances to work his greater good. And so this this account of Bethlehem, seemingly insignificant place, is exactly where God is choosing to do that. And that's where there's that contrast between Micah and, and Matthew, is Matthew can he's on the other side of it. He can recognize this is what God did. Whereas in Micah's time, it just seems like, well, it's great from here, but this is where God's choosing to work. This is what God's going to do. So what the world sees as weak, God sees as a means of accomplishing his will for his glory. God is going to use whatever means he sees necessary to work out his plan that he has ordained. So verses to continue on, it says, whose coming forth is from of old. So but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So this same terminology is actually used in Habakkuk 1.12, where it's actually applied to God himself as the ancient of days. And so this, this ruler that is to come, that Mike is promising in the midst of all this hardship, this trial that God's people are facing, he's saying there's a ruler that's going to come. He's from of old. He's likened to God. that He's going to be the one that's going to save you. He's going to be the one to deliver you. Since before the creation of the world, God knew that he would be sent, that Jesus was necessary to send. And so here Micah is using this verbiage to say that, that from the beginning of the world, God was aware of who Jesus was. God was going to be sending him to deliver his people. God is sovereign. There's nothing that catches him off guard. The circumstances that Judah found themselves in was not where God was like, all right, I got to figure out what, what what's going to happen. The fall, whenever Adam and Eve chose to partake of the fruit, God wasn't like, all right, now we got to figure out what's going to happen. Before the creation of the world, God was already aware of what was going to happen and that the sending of the person of Jesus was absolutely necessary, that he was going to work that out. And throughout the whole of Scripture, we see glimpses of this. And Micah is just another thread where that's picked up of God being aware of what's going on and that he's going to bring what is necessary in the right time, in the right way. So in verse 3, he says that, that, Israel, that they are going to be given up. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. When it refers to them being given up, it's referring to that gap of time from the, from the fall of in 586, the fall of Jerusalem, where ultimately it wasn't Assyria that, that ended up 
uh, invading and taking over. It was the Babylon that ended up dispersing Judah, where they were taken into captivity. And they were, that was the judgment. That was kind of the culmination of what it is that they were facing. Um, however, it was 500, over 500 years from that time, from the fall of Jerusalem, that was whenever there was not a, a king, a Davidic king on the throne. And so they were, they, like I said, they thought that the covenant, well, I don't know what's going to happen. This is falling apart. Here we are in, in judgment. We're in Babylon. How is this going to happen? Honestly, there was a lot of hardship that, 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 that they went through as a result of that. However, God preserves a remnant of his people. And ultimately, through that remnant is where God, uh, man after man, through the genealogy of Jesus, is ultimately where he, he comes about. So though there was this period, this 500-year period, this promise that God had, it's, it's delayed. God always makes good on his promises. God is always faithful to do what it is that he says he's going to do. And so in our lives, whenever we read these promises of God, we're facing particular trials, particular hardships in our lives. It can seem like, God, where are you? What are you doing? That there's times where we, we just have to be patient. But we, we draw upon the character of God and who he is. And he's always faithful. He always works everything out for good for those whom he's called according to his purpose if you are a child of god god will work even in the midst of the hard circumstances for good it's not always in our timing i don't think 500 years was the ideal period for the people in captivity to see the true davidic king established back on the throne but that's how god chose to work and ultimately Praise God for Jesus. I'm glad that it wasn't some temporal king that is just one after the other. I'm grateful God worked the way that he did. Ultimately, he sent Jesus who could, would, and did establish the throne forever because Jesus is not a mere human being. He's God in the flesh. He is eternal. And so he's established that. He's fulfilled that covenant forever that God made good on his promise through Jesus Christ. There's other uh, familiar verbiage used in verse 4. Uh, where it says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So the shepherd, who's the great shepherd? Jesus. So it, it's, it's really hard to read these verses one through five in Micah and not just automatically insert Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm grateful that we're able to do that. If we're familiar with our Bibles, we're able to do that. But as I was work, working through this is having to kind of set that over here for a moment. And you think in the time of, of the people that Micah is prophesying to, they did not know what that looked like. They did, and, and he shall stand as a, uh, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So it's like a shepherd, there's sheep, but he's going to be empowered by the Lord to do that. Like they would have been somewhat familiar, but it's not the same as what we're able to pick up. But I think it's really neat reading through these verses in Micah where we're able to see that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, where these people, they just had to hold on to these promises. They had to hold on to this hope. And so in, in Matthew, where he's picking up on this again, he specifically quotes from where Jesus is going to be born. But this whole section, there's so much more in this prophecy that points to this Messiah that was to come, that was going to be empowered by God to shepherd Israel. He was going to be the one to be able to keep them in the straight and narrow, lead them in the way. 
for, for those of you that aren't familiar, I mean, like, sheep are stubborn, stupid animals. Like, they're not easy to handle. And so it takes a shepherd to be able to control them and keep them safe, keep them healthy, keep them alive, keep them from being attacked. And, and that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the great shepherd. He shepherds his sheep. That's us, that we aren't always the, the, the brightest light bulbs, you know, in the lamp, that we aren't the sharpest tool in the shed, that we, we go astray, that we need someone, ultimately God, to keep us in the straight and narrow. Because if not, we're just like the Judeans, the, uh, the, the people that are they're facing judgment at this time, apart from God working in and through us, we're going to tend towards idolatry. We're going to tend towards greed. We're going to tend towards sin. That's our natural disposition. And that's why it's so significant that this shepherd king from ancient of days would come along and be the one to ultimately keep God's people where God's people need to be. Verse 5 says that, and he will be their peace, and he shall be their peace. Is is 5a. It goes on to say, when the Assyrians come into the land and tread in our place, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes. And it goes on from there. And so that's where Micah resumes back into the, the, the time and space of what was going on there. Of this, They're still in the midst of judgment. And so there's this beautifully rich passage in verses 1 through 5 where it's kind of like you're transported from judgment, hardship, prepare for war. You're facing the consequences of your sin. But God, and there's this beautiful picture of this messianic figure, this Davidic king to come that is going to shepherd his people. He's going to preserve them. He's going to be their peace. He's going to come from a seemingly insignificant place, but he's going to be this very instrument that God chooses to use to preserve his people. And then you, you're right back in it. You're back in judgment and the reality of the circumstances that, that we're facing. And there's seasons where we face similar situations where there's these, this hardship you're in the midst of. And maybe it's in a time of prayer. Maybe it's a fitly spoken word from a faithful friend. Maybe it's circumstances, whatever means that God chooses to work, where you're kind of removed from the heat of that situation and you're reminded of the promises of God. There's this peace that surpasses understanding where you just, it's gonna be all right. And how do we know it's gonna be all right? Because God is faithful. Because God is the one that's working on our behalf. Because God sent his son, Jesus, as a baby, as Bradley said, to live a perfectly sinless life. To ultimately die on the cross for us. To do what we could not do. So that way, we could have new hearts put in us. A heart of stone is removed. A heart of flesh. God's spirit then dwells in us. And that is how God shepherds his people. That's how God preserves his people. That's ultimately God. It's the culmination of our covenant, keeping God, making good on his promises. The, the book of Micah closes. There's more I want to get into, but as always, I'm long-winded. That, that where there's these other covenant threads that are picked back up, the book closes in chapter 7, the, the finishing verses. Let me just turn there and read it for you. Chapter 7, verse 20. Let me back up. I'll read 18 through 20. So this is a doxology, a, a, a worshipful song praising God. Verse 18, who is, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So that 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 terminology, that that last sentence, and you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. That is all covenant language. When it refers to Abraham, it's hearkening back to the Abrahamic covenant. Steadfast love is this term hesed. It's this covenant faithfulness. This word is taken on just deep meaning for me when I've really understood whenever you read throughout the scripture of God's of, of steadfast love. It's this, this covenant faithfulness, this unwavering promise this guarantee that it's going to have that god is who he is that this is how god's going to do that god is sworn by his father because of his steadfast love through his covenants from all the way from from really adam all the way to noah to abraham to moses to david ultimately the culmination in christ the fulfillment of all of that the new covenant that god established through his people that god is faithful that we can look at books like the book of micah the passages in verses one through five as just one example of many of through the whole of scripture god is is preserving this crimson thread that is jesus christ that is him working throughout time and space to reconcile fallen sinful people to himself he's working in the midst of sin in the midst of struggles he's working working in the midst of of faithfulness of people at the times when they're doing well and the times when they're not doing well god is sovereign and he uses all of those things in his sovereignly foreordained way to to trace a to b to c to christ's coming but the, the really neat thing is, I, I think it's easy to kind of stop there in our minds of thinking like, okay, Christ, Jesus was the culmination of it. He was born as a baby, virgin birth, perfect sinless life, uh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, buried, rose again, ascended, and he's coming again. And like we kind of, like we wrap our heads around that. We wrap our heads around the whole of scripture. I say that loosely, we'll never get there. But the reality is, I think it's easy to forget like we're still in the midst of it. That each one of us sitting here on the seemingly insignificant property in Okeechobee, Florida, are still a part of what God was promising in Micah, what God promised to Abraham, what God promised to Moses, to David, throughout the whole of Scripture. Like that story is continuing. That yes, it was finished in one sense on the cross and the person and work of Jesus Christ, but that's my mother-in-law is going to hate me for this. It's that so that's the already that happened. That's already happened, but there's the not yet. It's not completely done. That God is still working in the midst of it. It's finished, but it's not. There's a further realization that will culminate in the return of Christ when he calls his church, the true Israel, his people, that faithful remnant to himself that he's preserved. And judgment will occur to all of those who have not believed and trusted in the name of Jesus. Just like in Micah, there was very real judgment that was happening. There were people that I'm sure faced terrible situations from worldly standards and lost their life over it due to their sinfulness and their unwillingness to be obedient to God. The same will be true when Christ returns in power and glory. There will be judgment that will be faced. There will be that that Judah that is going to have to face the reality, the consequences of their sin. 
but there's that remnant that God has been faithful to preserve for those that have believed in the gospel, that are repenting and turning away from sin, that are seeking to be obedient through the work of the Spirit in our lives, that God will preserve and ultimately will live with him in, in glory. And so I don't want us to lose sight of that, that we are still part of that great story. And what, how amazing that the, the God that spoke all things into existence is choosing to work in me. He's choosing to work in this church in seemingly insignificant Okeechobee to do who knows what. Okeechobee could be the Bethlehem. I don't know. I'm not trying to like paint some crazy picture, but I hope you get what I'm saying. Like God works in the small things. He's doing that even now. Let us praise God for what it is that he's doing. That as we go through this this holiday season, to remember that, to not let the Christmas story to just become a culture, a cultural cliche that we're all too familiar with, but to recognize from the beginning of eternity till now onward, God is doing a tremendous work and that we get to be a part of that great redemptive story, that God is faithful. He is a covenant keeping God that since he's made promises, he'll keep those promises and we can rest assured of that, that God is faithful. So let us turn to him to help us be faithful to what it is that he's called us to. Let me close this in prayer. God, I thank you that you are faithful. God, that it is not dependent on me, that it's not dependent on any one of these individuals, that we are not the make it or break it of um, the bigger picture. But ultimately, God, your covenant was established because you're faithful, Lord, and you will always be faithful. So I pray that we who are facing hardships, trials that individuals are struggling through, could, could draw strength on that, Lord, that you are the one that will sustain us because you are who you are. And Lord, I thank you that this great event in time and space through the birth of Jesus Christ occurred that we are on the other side of that and we we can see that fuller realization of truth lord and so i just ask that as we do go through this holiday season that it wouldn't just simply be christmas the holidays but that it would be an opportunity for us to to fall in love with you more to that you would enable us to be obedient and faithful to you lord that you would just have your way in us and through us, that you would have your way through this church, Lord, and that we would be an instrument that you would use for your glory. And we thank you in Christ's name.